John chapter 6 this morning, we're going to look at a fairly large text. This is John 6, 22 through 59. So let me read this to us this morning, and then we'll move forward. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, Long text this morning, obviously, uh, but an incredibly important text. And there's a lot here. There's a lot of different directions we could go this morning. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus perform yet another of what John calls his signs. John identifies at least six or seven signs here in his gospel. And these signs are miracles that are not just miracles for the sake of miracles, but they're miracles that clearly identify the identity of Jesus. They clearly mark him as being who he claimed to be, this one who was from God. We've seen him turn water into wine. We saw him heal the official's son from a great distance. And then we saw him heal the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Right before this, though, last week, we saw Jesus feed 5,000 men, which was perhaps upwards of 15 to 20,000 people, including women and children. And he did that with just a few scraps of food. And this is one of the largest scale miracles that Jesus does. It is one of his biggest signs. If we're just talking about the sheer number of people who kind of participate in it and are beneficiaries of it or who witness it. And I think it's a testament to the significance of this miracle that it's the only miracle mentioned by all four gospels. Um, If Jesus wasn't already famous, uh, feeding 15, 20,000 people miraculously certainly gave him that status. Um, but John has well established that Jesus has like supernatural knowledge of what is going on in people's minds and hearts. As we saw several chapters ago, John said that Jesus didn't need other people to like give testimony or bear witness about other people. Jesus was well aware of what was happening inside of people and what they were thinking. And we see that even in this text today as he's teaching, he's responding to what he perceives to be going on in the minds and hearts of those who are listening to him. Um, And I I think this is really uh, uh, like pointing to the fact that Jesus is omniscient, that Jesus has this supernatural kind of all-knowing ability, which is another, um, uh, another kind of indicator of his deity. Um, In fact, to my knowledge in the gospels, There is only one time where Jesus claims to not know something. And that's in Matthew 24, where he says he doesn't know the day or the hour when he will return. He says only God the Father knows that. Uh, Even the angels in heaven don't know that. To my knowledge, that's the only time where Jesus claims to not know something, which is fascinating to me. Um, So what that means for this context is that he knew these people... 
He knew how people would respond to them. With the feeding of the 5,000, he knew how people would respond to him feeding them. And the response we saw in verse 15, we didn't read this today, but if you would look at verse 15, because we get this little aside from John immediately after he's fed everybody. And what it says is perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Uh, I think that John, perhaps more than any of the other Gospels, is in a very literary way trying to help his readers understand the answer to this question. How does uh, an unknown Galilean rabbi go from complete obscurity to mass followership to brutal death in such a short span of time? Like, how in the world does that happen? And here is something I think John is trying to show us, and this would be our first point today. It's this. The crucifixion is not something that happens to Jesus so much as it is something that Jesus himself cultivates and facilitates. That the crucifixion is not just something that other people do to him, but that it literally is the reason why he has come. And that through his actions, through his teaching, through his miracles, that he's actually cultivating and facilitating circumstances to lead to that point. So let me say that again. It's something that he intentionally pursues with an acute sense of timing. And John does a great job of helping us understand, I think, the intentional steps that Jesus takes. That Jesus, not just his enemies, but Jesus takes along the way that ultimately result in his arrest and his crucifixion. And that may seem like a little bit of a hot take, but but I think it's extremely biblical. It's not just that Jesus knew that he would be killed. It was something that he was strategically and methodically bringing about through his actions. In other words, there is no point in the gospel narrative where Jesus is not in full control. And the feeding of the 5,000 shows us this. Um, His desire to feed the crowd, I think, kind of has two levels. And oftentimes only one level is talked about. Um, the basic level is that people were hungry, right? And the, and the text suggests, though, that Jesus knew what he was going to do before he did it. Um, so there is a very basic level where Jesus cares about people. He recognizes that all of these folks have left their homes, that they're all out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. Some of them have traveled across the Sea of Galilee to be with him. They don't have provisions. It is getting late. Um, and, and so there is a desire to sort of nurture and care for people. So that would be sort of a foundational level. But the second level was that Jesus knew that if he miraculously fed such a large group of people, it was going to be on, right? Like it was going to trigger something within these folks. And that is exactly what happened. He literally incites a crowd into a frenzy through taking a few pieces of bread and some fish and multiplying them times 20,000. 
They're blown away by what has happened. Notice that John doesn't really recount anything he said to the crowd. He doesn't relay that to us. Just that he blessed the bread and the fish, and then they picked up leftovers. It wasn't so much his words, but his actions that made them want to start a rebellion and make him king. Whether he wanted to or not, they wanted to come take him by force because of what he had done and literally start a rebellion against the Romans and make him king. So John's helping us understand how each of these scenes, how each of these actions of Christ is building the tension and leading us ultimately to the point where he's crucified. Now, afterwards, the crowds come and find him, right? He's, he's tried to, like, remove himself from them, but they recognize that he's gone. They recognize that his disciples are gone. If you remember, Jesus literally walks across the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side and join his disciples. Um, uh, but this becomes a significant teaching moment for Jesus. They all, the crowds all leave where they were out in the wilderness. They go back across the Sea of Galilee and they find him. And Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. And um, this leads us to our second point, which is this. For any that want to follow him, Jesus is continually upping the level of challenge. For any who want to follow him, Jesus is continually upping the level of challenge. Um, sometimes Jesus is unfairly accused of being like a cult leader. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's like a fascination in our culture right now with cults. Uh, how many documentaries are there out right now that are about cults? Uh, I mean, there's so, so many. And, and on all of, all of these cults like, kind of follow a general pattern. It's like, you have a, yes, you have a dynamic leader who says incredible things. Maybe there's some uh, miraculous things that are attributed to him, albeit dubious. But, but you have a dynamic kind of guru-esque type leader uh, that people start following. Uh, normally, that results in some level of persecution. And so immediately step number two is, hey, we got to find our own place and we got to we got to have a compound, right? Like that, for whatever reason, is always kind of the next step. And, and it's funny in the media to me that anytime somebody talks about a compound, they're either talking about a cult or they're like talking about the Kennedys. Um, those are apparently the only two groups of people who have compounds or it's like the Bush family has a compound in Kenny Buckport. Um, but but then it becomes like. You know, we should all probably be wearing the same clothes, right? Um, that, that just seems like the natural next step. The jumpsuit, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is about that. Uh, and then the next step is the, the main guy going, hey, surprise, I'm a pedophile. Uh, and I get to have sex with everybody. Like, it's like, man, we didn't see that coming, but, but we're so lucky. We've got the jumpsuits and everything. We're all in now. Um, that's a cult, right? That's not what Jesus is. That's not what he's doing. But he is continually upping the level of challenge to people, and he is sort of weeding people out, like those who are really with him and those who are not really with him. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
So this arena-sized crowd of people is literally following and seeking Jesus, and they've traveled across the sea to find him, and when they find him, he doesn't say, oh man, guys, I'm so honored, I'm so flattered that y'all, I mean, y'all have spent several days away from home, and your families, and you, man, you've made all of this, you've done all this travel, and man, it's got to be really hard, and oh man, you know, some people don't like us, but we just appreciate y'all's support so much, it means so much, blah, 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 blah. He doesn't say anything like that, does he? No, he immediately challenges their intentions. You don't really want me. You want bread. You don't really want me. You want what I can do for you. And how many of us are guilty of that exact same thing when it comes to Jesus? You don't really want me. You want me for something that I can do for you. How many of us at times don't really want Jesus, meaning we have no desire to pattern our lives after Christ or to truly give him authority in our lives or over our actions or our money or our children or our careers, but we'd love Jesus to heal uh, our loved one who is sick. We'd love for Jesus to help us get the job we applied for. We'd love for Jesus to get us out of hell because that, that doesn't sound good. But we don't really want him. We want something he can do for us. Here's what John's illuminating. If you only want Jesus because of something you think he can do for you, you don't really want him. You want the thing, not the source you, you want the object, not the maker. If you want me to be king because you think I will make your life now better, you don't really want me to be the king of your heart. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword and this is not a verse where Jesus is saying that he is like a military leader and that he's come to instigate battle or war against somebody like the Romans or whoever the oppressor is at the time. No, quite the contrary. The operable phrase in that verse, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. The operable uh, prepositional phrase there is to the earth. Here's the thing, Jesus has come to bring peace, church, but the peace is regarding the war that has waged be between God and the sin of mankind. Jesus has come to bring an end to that war and to restore peace between the creator and the created, but don't misunderstand, that will create all kinds of conflict on earth. If you think I'm here to be a human king who drives out the oppressors and brings peace to your life now, you don't understand who I am. If you think I'm a king who's going to uh, issue in this state of prosperity where uh, even when you're out in the middle of the wilderness without any food, food's going to magically appear, you don't understand who I am or what I've come to do. And here's the thing, I, I think that 
that is actually the way that Jesus is sold to people in a lot of churches today. That what Jesus has come to do is to make your life better right now. Um, or that Jesus has in some way come to fix all of your problems right now. And that is not something he promises. What he does promise is that if you follow him in faith, he will send a helper to you in the form of the Holy Spirit who will help create peace within you. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, that he will breed divine peace within you in the midst of this world. But Jesus is not a magic genie who makes all our problems go away. To the contrary, I think he's pretty straight up with people that if you follow me, it is going to create problems for you. Later in John 15, Jesus will tell his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. I mean, that's about as straightforward as he can get, right? Those guys knew what they were walking into. And if you've been in our church history class, you know that that was true for all the apostles. That came to fruition, right? Because pretty much all of them were murdered, with the exception of one, and it's the guy we're reading here, John, the apostle, who was exiled at the end of his life. But notice Jesus said there, the world hates me. He has come to his own, and his own have not received him. I haven't come to bring peace to the earth. But Jesus says, I have chosen you out of the world. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, he has chosen you out of the world, not to submit yourself in allegiance to the kings or gods or presidents of the earth, but to submit yourself to him as the king of the universe. And not because of what he can do for you, but because of who he is. Who he is, is the one who made you and me. And for that fact alone, he is worthy of our praise and honor. This is our third point. Jesus wants us to see him for who he is and worship him for who he is, not simply for what he can do for us. And this is why I've said all along in this series that the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. He is the good news here. If all we talk about when we talk about the good news is what he can do for us rather than who he is, that's a problem, guys. Because the incredible promises of the gospel, eternal life, reconciliation to the Father, adoption into God's family, all of those things flow from us worshiping Jesus through faith. Not from us worshiping what we get from him. So who is he? Well, he says, I am the bread of life. 
Don't follow me because you think I can give you actual bread. Follow me because I am bread. This is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes here in John's gospel, uh, which really harkens back to the Torah, to the books of Moses, where God says, I am what I am, or I am who I am, or I am that I am. Who is God? God, who are you? And God says, I am. Here's what we forget. God is not a man. Yes, God incarnates in human flesh as Jesus Christ, but his being, his essence is that of creator, not created. What Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter three is that God is spirit. He is in all and through all. The New Testament teaches us. He is. And Jesus picks this up and says, I'm the bread of life. He's trying to help people get this. Uh, I'm the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Friends, Jesus is not claiming to be a great human teacher or just a great moral teacher. As we read in C.S. Lewis last week, Jesus hasn't given us that option. And yet many people don't see him for who he is and don't want what he's offering. And that's largely a problem of perspective. I'm so laser focused on what I want that I can't see what could be if Jesus were truly my Lord and master. Again, I have to quote C.S. Lewis here who says it this way. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis says, that's the way we are so often in relationship to God that it's so difficult for get, to get our eyes off the stuff that we most want, this earthly, material, worldly stuff, to get our eyes off of that and to put them on the cross so that the Lord can expand our awareness to see what could be, even if it's just in a glimpse Right? Even if just in sort of a foretaste. And so Lewis says, we're like a child living in a slum who's just happy to make uh, mud pies and, and uh, just need more mud, right? Because this is, this is all I know, it's all I want. And, and yet what could be is he could be building sandcastles at an incredible beach. How many of us are forsaking what could be because we're so focused on what is and what is in front of us or what we desire or what we crave or what we're addicted to is so far less than what he is? Now, again, Jesus ups the ante on this language. He says that he is the bread and that anyone who eats the bread of life will live forever and that the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. So what is Jesus really offering to his listeners? Well, it isn't simply eternal life. 
It is himself. And I like to imagine an obvious like record scratch at this point. Like, <laughs> you must eat my flesh. It's like, all right, you've been saying some weird stuff up until now, but, but now we're at a whole other level, right? The Jews then disputed amongst themselves. This is uh, verse 52 saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, notice you want eternal life. That flows from him. He's not just offering you freedom from sin and death and hell. He is offering you himself. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight here. And when he uses this language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we tend to go, oh, well, Jesus was just talking about this ritual that we all know as Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. Um through which his body and his blood is symbolically represented as bread and wine. But, but wait a minute. Is that really what you think? Is that, is that really what you think he's talking about here? That, that what he's telling to them right, right now is, is all really just for down the road when there's a church service that has this formulaic ritual of eating bread and drinking wine? Is, is that all that's going on here? Some of us are studying church history right now, and one thing that's abundantly clear from church history is that all early Christians, all early Christians, believed that Christ was literally present in the bread and the wine. Now, now don't confuse this with the Roman Catholic view, uh, which is sometimes called transubstantiation. Um, That's something that doesn't really come into the mix until at least 1,200 years after the time of Christ. Uh, Catholics believe that the bread and the wine literally transform into the flesh and blood of Christ. And in some cases, you you have to eat it over and over again to stay in God's grace. Um, The earliest Christians, though, took more of a mystical and mysterious approach. They didn't say, oh, this is just some symbolic ritual and it doesn't really matter how often we do it or if we do it and, or, 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 or what the elements are that we use in it, if it's bread and wine or bread and grape juice. Um, I was at a church once, a Baptist church, surprise, surprise, that uh, might do communion once a quarter, uh, maybe once every six months. And I remember one Sunday... Um, the, uh, commun- the, the, the wine looked funny. Well, it wasn't wine. It would have been grape juice, right, uh, at a Baptist church. But, but it looked a little funny. And what had happened was the deacons who were preparing uh, the communion trays had actually run out of grape juice uh, at some point in the process. And uh, they had such a low view of what this was that they literally went, hey, it's, it's okay. We've got uh, some purple Kool-Aid. And they literally mixed up some purple Kool-Aid, filled up the rest of the trays, and we had communion for the day. Um, and my take on the early church is that they would have viewed something like that as blasphemy. That would have boggled their minds. Um, because the Eucharist, as they called it, which is a word that means thanksgiving, was central to early Christian worship. 
when the church came together, they celebrated with the bread and the wine every time they gathered. Not because they thought, hey, we have to eat this every week in order to be saved, but because Jesus had commanded it. Do this in remembrance of me. And they believed that he was somehow present. I mean, it's kind of like that where two or more are gathered together. Here, there I am with you. It's like, man, when we come together to worship him and to be obedient to the things he's called us to do, that he extends his grace to us. He fills us and encourages us and equips us because guess what? We've then got to go back out into the earth. And it's almost like this moment where heaven and earth come together as we remember what Christ has done for us through his body and his blood. And they had no like systematic explanation for it. Right. It it was mystery to them. We don't know how God is doing these things. But what we know is that we love him and the way that we express our love and devotion to him is by seeking to be obedient to him. And I think it's just like the wilderness uh, for the Israelites. Out in the wilderness, they needed bread and water, which is what God provided to them. They needed it just to survive. And friends, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who follow him with our lives, we are in a wilderness today that is called the earth. It's largely a wasteland of sin and brokenness. And if you don't believe me, spend five minutes on social media, spend five minutes watching the evening news, uh, just spend five minutes scrolling through the most popular movies and shows on Netflix. How do we live in the world and yet not be of the world and not so desirous for the things of the world that we don't want Christ? The answer is we can't on our own. We can't on our own. We need Jesus. We need him. We need his spirit. We need the bread of life. And that's why we celebrate communion every week. Because we desire to be obedient to him. One, because we want to do what he's told us to do. But then two, we we need him. We need to reflect on how his sacrifice for us offers him to us, not just eternal life, not just reconciliation to the Father, not just freedom from death and sin and hell, but but literally Jesus himself, that we get to become co-heirs along with him. We need him. We need the bread of life, and that's why we do what we do. It reminds me of Uh, That song, uh, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, right? Oh, God, how I need you. I, I think that should be the heart cry of any true follower of Christ seeking to live in this world, not to pull away from the world like a cult, Right, Not to pull away to the compound, but to be present with the hurting and the broken, with those who are in need of a physician. Lord, I need you. Oh, God, 
how I need you. Let us pray. Father, uh, what a privilege it is today to have the opportunity to gather together as your body to celebrate what you have done for us on the cross. And I pray, Lord, today that you would, even though this may seem like a nuanced thing to people, God, I pray that you would just awaken us to the ways that we maybe want what you can give us more than we want you for who you are and for the incredible way that you have facilitated this opportunity for us to be in relationship with you. Thank you for sending your only son to die so that that way might be made. And God, I pray that our worship, our desire for obedience would truly be rooted in the person and work of Christ. That we would truly be Christians. And God, we declare how much we need you. Father, forgive us when we lean on our own understanding or we lean on our own um, resources or what we perceive as our own abilities. God, help us to see you for who you are and help us to find joy and hope in it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with us?